Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society's um, first lecture of the year. Um, it's my pleasure as the uh, departing president of the Aristotelian Society to introduce my successor, Helen Beebe. Helen is the Samuel Hall Professor of Philosophy at the University of Manchester. Um, she was actually a PhD student here in London at King's College, uh, and then she taught in various places, including University of Manchester. Then she was professor at University of Birmingham before going back to Manchester to be the Samuel Hall Professor. Um, Helen will be known to to you and all of you in this room as um, a one of the leading philosophers in the field of metaphysics in in this country. Uh, she has worked on uh, principally, I think, on, on causation and on freedom of the will, and she has published monographs on both of those subjects, uh, as well as contributing through um, significant edited works on causation and on, on uh, metaphysics. Um, I think her work in, in the metaphysics of causation has been characterized with a, a preoccupation with um, Humean themes, uh, and she is, in fact, her monograph on causation is on human causation. Um, she has also worked in the, in the philosophy of science. She ran a significant research project on the metaphysics of science. Um, she uh, has been the president of the British Society for the Philosophy of Science. Um, she has also been um, very active in the British Philosophical Association and... Um, uh, which she was the director for um, for a number of years, and her contribution to the to the profession as well as to to philosophy and its intellectual content is um, is enormous. Um, it should also be pointed out that she's done an enormous amount of work in bringing the issue of um, the representation of women in philosophy um, to the fore in our discussions here in this country, and these discussions have had a wide-ranging impact throughout the world. Um, so. It is uh, truly a great pleasure to introduce Helen Beebe, who's going to talk to us tonight on philosophical skepticism. Oops. Thank you, Tim. Um, obviously, it is a great honor to be president of the Aristotelian Society. Um, before I start, I would just like to thank Tim, who's been a fantastic president this past year, and I think we should give him a round of applause. Okay, so uh, I'm mostly going to read this paper. Um, uh, some of you have obviously read it already. Uh, you can read along if you like. Uh, in recent years, a lot of attention has been paid to what I'll call the problem of philosophical scepticism. <laughs> philosophical scepticism, as I'm using the term here, is scepticism about philosophy. The claim that is that philosophers don't know, or perhaps don't even so much as have warrant for, many of the substantive philosophical claims that they make. Philosophical scepticism contrasts with what I'll call garden variety scepticism, the kind of scepticism that claims to cast doubt on more mundane beliefs, such as the belief that the external world exists, the belief that other minds exist, or the belief that the future resembles the past. A surprisingly large number of philosophers have recently endorsed philosophical scepticism, or at least come pretty close to it. So, for example, Hilary Kornbliss says, it's just not clear that the philosophical enterprise has served as a source of knowledge. 
Bill Lycan says that we have only dribs and drabs of philosophical knowledge here and there, as he puts it, nothing to write a song about. The challenge of philosophical skepticism has a variety of sources of which I'll discuss two, what I'll call the methodology challenge and the disagreement challenge. According to the methodology challenge, often aimed specifically at metaphysics, our methods can state no claim to truth conduciveness. Thus, we have no particular reason to think that the theories that those methods deliver are true. The disagreement challenge takes as its starting point the fact of what Sanford Goldberg calls systematic peer disagreement. Pretty much whatever your philosophical view, you'll find plenty of other philosophers who are just as good at philosophy as you are and just as well informed, who sincerely have our view that's incompatible with your own. I'm sure we are all very aware of this phenomenon. And this, so the argument goes, undermines our epistemic entitlement to our own view. The problem of philosophical skepticism is a problem because we like to think that we do have knowledge of substantive philosophical claims. Knowledge not just of what follows from what, or of which philosophical theses are compatible or incompatible with other theses, or with common sense, or whatever, but knowledge of theses about, for example, the nature of reality. Moreover, philosophers tend to take for granted that the aim of philosophy, or at least one of its aims, is also knowledge. So even if we individually don't know very much, we can kind of take comfort in the thought that somehow or other we're collectively making progress towards that goal. Philosophical skepticism also puts pressure on conceiving of the aim of philosophy as knowledge. If we have no reason to think that our methods are truth conducive, then it's hard to see how we can be making progress towards that goal. And if systematic peer disagreement undermines knowledge, only the optimist who thinks that such disagreement might eventually and by rational means disappear can hang on to the idea that one day, in principle, knowledge will be achieved. And it's unclear what might warrant such optimism, given philosophy's long history of failure to resolve major points of substantive disagreement. In fact, some aspects of contemporary philosophy are quite hard to square with the claim that it's knowledge that we seek. Take, for example, David Lewis's thesis of human supervenience. When he introduced the thesis back in 1986, he offered no argument for it whatsoever. Um, he didn't even attempt any additional, any informal motivation for it, and indeed didn't, as far as I can tell, at any later point either. He himself didn't even appear to be very interested in whether it's true. What I want to fight, he says, are philosophical arguments against human supervenience. And yet, despite the fact that it appeared on the scene as a mere speculative hypothesis, and indeed still is a mere speculative hypothesis, human supervenience has been the subject of an enormous amount of philosophical attention over the last 30 years. That's hard to explain if what we really care about is the pursuit of knowledge. Why did we not collectively simply ignore it, pending a passable argument in its favour? Even in methodological mode, our own accounts of what we're doing sometimes sit rather uneasily with a self-conception as knowledge seekers. Consider the way in which the theoretical virtues are normally discussed. Generally speaking, the claim is made that some virtues, such as ontological or ideological parsimony or simplicity, is a ground for theory choice or preference. It's very rarely claimed explicitly that they're grounds for thinking the theory in question is true. That is, that theory choice or preference itself is a matter of choosing the theory that's most likely to be the true one. And when that claim is explicitly interrogated, the conclusion reached is normally a negative one. Of course, philosophers are not unaware of the problem of connecting the theoretical virtues with truth conduciveness, but given the prominence of the theoretical virtues in discussions in contemporary ontology in particular, if ontologists really think that what they're up to is figuring out the truth, then it's surprising, to say the least, that they spend so much time, to use David Armstrong's expression, avoiding a compulsory question on the examination paper. So let me just tell you how this paper is going to go. Uh, I'm going to start off saying a bit about the methodology challenge. 
and the claim is going to be that we lack grounds for thinking that our methodology is truth conducive and then I'll say a bit about the disagreement challenge. Uh, the main claim here is that um, since very many philosophical theses are reasonably contested, we collectively know very little, um, nor do we have grounds for optimism that the situation is ever going to improve. Uh, so if philosophy's aim is knowledge, our methods are not fit for purpose. That's the negative phase of the paper. Um, uh, and then I try and be a little bit more positive. Um, and I really should have thought of the name that I can pronounce properly. I'm calling this equilibrism. Uh, so the idea is that uh, if knowledge is not a sensible thing to aim at, we should maybe set our sights a little bit lower. Uh, and uh, the view that I'm going to endorse is a broadly Lewisian view. So the thought is that individually, our aim is to bring our opinions into equilibrium. Collectively, our aim is to find out what equilibria there are that can withstand examination. So it's a less ambitious aim, but nonetheless a worthy one, I like to think. And then finally, uh, I talk about a problem for this kind of view, which I'm calling the commitment problem. Um, and the problem is this, if philosophical skepticism is correct, how can we be so much as entitled to hold the very opinions that we are supposed to be bringing into equilibrium? Um, and I'm going to very tentatively uh, uh, endorse Van, Van Frasen's notion of acceptance as a way of delivering something like commitment, um, but which uh, falls short of belief. So, first <coughs> section, methodology challenge. So, start from the assumption that, I'm going to talk about metaphysics exclusively for a bit. Start from the assumption that metaphysics is to be pursued in a broadly naturalistic vein, in some sense of naturalistic. Um, that is, the methods it deploys are not substantially different from those deployed in the sciences. This is a very common view in metaphysics. We construct theories on the basis of our evidence, and we choose between rival empirically equivalent theories on the basis of the theoretical virtues, explanatory power, simplicity, parsimony, and the like. Um, I would say this is the dominant conception of metaphysics and certainly of ontology in contemporary philosophy. But now the worry goes, how does metaphysics fare in comparison to the sciences? Answer, spectacularly badly. Our evidence is woefully bereft, consisting largely as it does of intuitions, um, about whose alleged connection with the facts of the matter we lack any good story, and we have no grounds for thinking that, as deployed in metaphysics, maximization of the theoretical virtues is truth-conducive. Responses to the methodology challenge have largely focused on the status of intuitions, and in particular those intuitions that are elicited by thought experiments. I'll briefly consider a particular response to the challenge, namely that of Tim Williamson, who argues that the intuitions typically thought to be invoked by thought experiments are merely the upshot of our common or garden counterfactual thinking, something that in general we're pretty good at. Hence, he claims there's no special problem of accounting for the provenance or veracity of our intuitions. Williamson generally eschews using the term intuition for the judgments elicited by thought experiments. Um, he notes that in general, the main current function of the term intuition and its cognates is, quote, not to answer questions about the nature of the evidence on offer, but to fudge them by appearing to provide answers without really doing so. Um, I agree with him about that, um, but I'm going to carry on using the term intuition here. Well, perhaps he's right that intuitions really are just the upshot of counterfactual thinking, but how far does that get us, really? Even if we have on the table a plausible story about how we come by the judgments elicited by thought experiments, that story does not help us at all in the very many cases where we disagree with each other. Plenty of disputes remain. I'm just going to give you, partly for the sake of just stopping reading and talking to the PowerPoint for a minute, um, I'm going to just run through some examples that sort of loom large in... Um, 
some of the areas that I'm interested in. So let's start with the zygote argument. This is an argument of Almili's. Uh, and the central plank of the argument is the thought experiment. It goes like this. You can't really see that, but that's kind of a 1950s woman with some test tubes or something. Uh, anyway, this is, this is Diana. She's, she's kind of a demigod, uh, so she's not omniscient, but she knows all the laws of nature, and she uh, knows enough about uh, the distribution of matters of fact uh, to be able to predict the future with certainty. We're assuming determinism here. Um, and she also knows how her intervening in her environment in various ways um, will have um, consequences. In particular, she knows that if she uh, messes around with a particular zygote in a particular kind of way, uh, the upshot of that will be that a child called Ernie will be produced and uh, Ernie will end up growing up to commit, so I think in, in Al's original presentation, you know, uh, performs act A, I'm rendering that as strangling a cat. Uh, question. Oh, Ernie satisfies all of the standard compatibilist conditions on moral responsibility. Right. Question, is Ernie morally responsible for strangling the cat? Uh, Mealy thinks yes, plenty of people disagree with him. Uh, John Martin Fisher thinks no, I agree with him. Kind of looks like, as Fisher calls it, dialectical stalemate. Uh, did I get it the right way round? Mealy says no, he's not morally responsible. Fisher thinks he is morally responsible. Uh, second case, transitivity of causation. So. Some people think causation is transitive, some people think it isn't. Uh, here's one kind of case that is supposed to show us that causation isn't transitive. These cases normally involve some kind of threat and then a response to a threat. So uh, here we have a game of chess. White puts black into check. That causes black to make a counter move. And then further down the line, as a result of that counter move, uh, black wins the game. Question. Was whites putting black into check a cause of black's victory? Some people say yes, some people say no. Uh, looks like stalemate again. Final example, supervenience of the laws. Uh, so this is an example of John Carroll's. Uh, I'm simplifying it a little bit, I think. Uh, <coughs> here's a very odd possible word. It has a bunch of particles and it has a field. Uh, Here's another possible world. Exactly the same distribution of matters of fact. Some particles are field. The particles never go into the field in either case, right? Uh, claim. Uh, these two are distinct possibilities. In world one, it's a law that all the particles, all particles in the field have property F. And in world two, it's a law that all particles in the field have property G. Question. Are W1 and W2 really metaphysical possibilities? Uh, some people, Carol, for example, think yes. Some people, me, for example, think no. Uh, obviously, if those were two genuine metaphysical possibilities, then the laws couldn't supervene on the distributions of matters of fact. Okay, so those are just three examples where we seem to have got to a position where people just disagree with each other about um, you know, what morals we should take from these thought experiments. Now, in the case of run-of-the-mill counterfactuals that we deploy outside of philosophy, Disagreements can often, though, of course, not always be resolved. So I say that if your alarm clock hadn't gone off this morning as it did at 7.45, you would have missed the bus. You point out that you're already awake at 7.45 and about to get up when the alarm went off. I revise my judgment. Or you point out that while you were indeed woken by the alarm clock, you never sleep past 8 o'clock, so you would have woken up at most 15 minutes later, and anyway, you waited at the bus stop for a good 20 minutes, so again, you would have caught it anyway. Again, I revise my judgment in the light of this new information, and so on. 
We have no such method for resolving philosophers' clashes of intuitions. When I say that designed Ernie in the zygote argument example is morally responsible for his crime, or that in our transitivity case, uh, whites putting black into check really was a cause of black winning the game, and you disagree, we have no agreed way of reconciling our differences. There are no empirical facts. Uh, sorry, I've lost my place. Um, there are no empirical facts about which you might correct me, in the light of which I would recognize my mistake and change my mind. I've not illegitimately held fixed some facts that I should not have held fixed, or vice versa. Not by my lights, anyway. We might try to convince each other otherwise, of course, and sometimes one of us succeeds, but often we both fail. Often we both fail simply because each of us is holding fixed some element of our own background philosophical theory that the other rejects. But then our thought experiment serves only to provide an example of the different consequences of our respective theories. It can't adjudicate between them. So even if Williamson's right, the intuitions that are thus vindicated are a relatively circumscribed set, viz. the ones that philosophers by and large agree about. What about the theoretical virtues? Responses to this aspect of the methodology challenge have been rather thin on the ground, it must be said. Laurie Paul claims that, quote, if simplicity and other theoretical desiderata are truth-conducive in scientific theorizing, then they're truth-conducive in metaphysical theorizing. My sense of the matter is that this operates as a default assumption amongst metaphysicians. But that claim is contestable and indeed contested. First of all, as is well known, the claim that the theoretical virtues are truth conducive in the sciences has been contested by Bas van Frasen. And so far as I'm aware, that claim has not been refuted, although it's not hugely popular. In fact, as James Ladyman notes, and this is a quote, it's widely acknowledged that it's difficult to argue that simplicity or, ele or elegance are direct evidence for the truth of a theory. So scientific realists have tended towards the view that all the superempirical virtues are subsumed under explanatory power so that the solution to the underdetermination problem is inference to the best explanation. So suppose we grant, as of course Van Frasen does not, that inference to the best explanation is indeed a truth-preserving inference in the sciences may we infer that the same is true in metaphysics. Well, Ladyman argues that the role of inference to the best explanation as a means of theory choice in science has been overstated. Explanatory power, he says, plays the role that it, role that it does in scientific theory choice because of the relationship between theoretical explanation and the empirical virtues of scientific theories. We have inductive grounds for believing that pursuing simplicity and explanatory power in science will lead to empirical success but no such grounds when we're dealing with distinctively metaphysical explanations, since the latter is completely decoupled from empirical success. In other words, to the extent that, and only to the extent that best explanations in science have turned out to be predictably superior to their rivals, we have inductive grounds in the scientific case for thinking that inference to the best explanation is truth conducive. But no such inductive grounds exist in the case of metaphysics. Finally, what if we set all of this aside and grant that the theoretical virtues are individually truth-conducive, or roughly equivalently that inference to the best explanation is a truth-preserving inference in metaphysics? Would we then have a method for deciding between rival metaphysical theories? Well, we would if we had some agreed way of trading the virtues off against one another, or correspondingly a method for determining which of the various rival explanations that makes the different trades is the best explanation. But of course we don't and plenty of disputes in metaphysics arise from differences in our trade-offs. Paul herself says, quote, while choosing one theory over its competitors based on a particular balancing of theoretical virtues is perfectly rational, we will almost always have a range of alternative theories to choose from. This is because there are many different ways of balancing respective theoretical virtues, and hence many different ways of arriving at reflective equilibrium. 
I think she's exactly right about that. But the sceptical worry here is precisely how it can be rational to believe one theory rather than another when we have no grounds for thinking that our particular balancing act is more likely to deliver the truth than those of our competitors. So, consider Argel and Bargel's dispute about the nature of Raholes, as uh, reported by David and Steffi Lewis back in 1970. Uh, so, Arg uh, so here's a, it's like a kitchen roll with a hole in the side. Now, the question is, how many holes are there here? Uh, Bargel uh, thinks that holes aren't material objects. Uh, and Bargel thinks that there are straightforwardly two holes in that kitchen roll tube. Argel, by contrast, uh, thinks that holes are identical with hole linings and hence are material objects. Um, Argel has to say something very complicated about the, about the kitchen roll um, uh, and uh, something that's contrary to common sense. It doesn't turn out to be straightforwardly true that there are two holes there. Argel and Bargel have reached stalemate in their cost-benefit analysis of the claim that holes are material objects. They agree on what the costs and benefits of the view are. On the benefit side, we have clarity and economy. And on the cost side, we have dissonance with common sense. I'm sorry, I was supposed to read you a quote there. Right, here's how the conversation ends. Bargle says to Argel, you must pay a great price in the plausibility of your theories. Argel responds, agreed. We have been measuring the price. I've shown that it is not so great as you thought. I'm prepared to pay it. My theories can earn credence by their clarity and economy. And if they disagree a little with common opinion, then common opinion may be corrected, even by a philosopher. Bargle says, the price is still too high. Bargle says, we agree in principle. We are only haggling. <laughs> Bargle says, we do. And the same is true of our other debates over on Tick Parsimony. Indeed, this argument has served us as an illustration of the nature of our customary disputes. Right, so as I say, they've reached stalemate in their cost-benefit analysis, right? They agree on what the costs and benefits of Argle's view are. On the benefit side, we have clarity and economy, and on the cost side, we have dissonance with common sense. But they disagree over what the costs and benefits are worth. They weigh them up differently and get different results. So here's the sceptical problem again. It's unclear why Argel is entitled to hold that his theory earns credence by its clarity and economy, despite the cost, when he has no response to Bargel's view that it doesn't. The methodology challenge, then, is that we have no grounds for trusting our intuitions, perhaps at all, or conceding the point to, Williamson's, to Williamson when they conflict with those of our philosophical peers. And we have no grounds for thinking that the theoretical virtues are truth-conducive. Indeed, even if we grant that they are, we have no agreed methodological standard for trading them off against one another, and hence, where such trade-offs are what divide us, we have no more reason to believe our own theory than we do a theory whose alleged justification comes from making the trade differently. So from here on, I'm going to make a very big shift. I'm going to shift my attention from metaphysics in particular to philosophy in general, and I'm going to assume without argument that a version of the methodology challenge applies to other areas of philosophy as well. That is admittedly a very big assumption, since uh, the kind of naturalistic approach at with which the methodology challenge is aimed is largely, though not entirely, confined to contemporary metaphysics, and not even to the whole of metaphysics that, given not all metaphysicians, sign up to that particular way of proceeding. On the other hand, a version of Argos and Bargos situation is pretty commonplace, even outside metaphysics. Simpler, more elegant theories, whether in ethics or aesthetics or philosophy of language or wherever, have an annoying tendency to throw up some counterintuitive consequences, thus generating disputes about whether the solution to that problem is to add epicycles to the theory in order to save the intuitions, or rather to attempt to explain away or bite the bullet with respect to those recalcitrant intuitions. More generally, at least in many areas of philosophy, it's hard to see how other conceptions of appropriate philosophical methods are going to be any less susceptible to worries about the truth-conduciveness of those methods. Okay, 
Next section, uh, the disagreement challenge. Oh, wait, let me take that picture away. The disagreement challenge starts from the obvious and undeniable fact of pervasive systematic peer disagreement. In the previous section, I briefly considered two sources of such disagreement, divergent intuitions with respect to thought experiments and differences in how we're able, how, in how we're to trade costs against benefits. How, so the challenge goes, can we claim to know or be justified in believing our philosophical views when we know that equally capable and well-informed philosophers disagree with us and often continue to do so despite our best efforts to persuade them of the error of their ways? One kind of response to the disagreement challenge is to try to explain how a given philosopher S can legitimately claim to know or be justified in believing some proposition P, even in the face of persistent disagreement from S's peers about whether or not P. Broadly speaking, such responses try to argue that whatever evidence the belief that belief in not P by one's philosophical peers might in principle provide for the falsity of P, that evidence can at least in some contexts or circumstances legitimately be ignored. So, uh, for example, David Lewis, in a letter to Richard Cartwright from 1989, says, subject to a qualification, I say that the one who's right in a philosopher's impasse, in cases of systematic peer disagreement, typically knows that he's right. The qualification is that the knowledge may temporarily vanish in the course of philosophical discussion because alternatives are made relevant that normally are not. Maybe I cannot truly say, in the midst of a discussion of far-fetched sceptical hypotheses, that I know I have hands. Attending to these hypotheses temporarily raises the standards for what may be called knowledge. But I can truly say even then that under more ordinary circumstances, I can truly say that I know I have hands. The context of the discussion here is Graham Priest's view that contradictions can be true. Lewis, of course, is firmly of the view that they cannot. And he says that he knows that he's right and that his view is reasonable and Priest is wrong and that his view is unreasonable even though there's no serious possibility of establishing this to Priest's satisfaction. It's a genuine philosopher's impasse, since part of what's at issue between them is precisely what counts as reasonable. So Lewis is not merely interested here with garden variety sceptical scenarios, evil demons and the like. Rather, he's claiming that his contextualist account of knowledge applies equally to philosopher's impasses, where the alternative hypothesis is something that's actually believed and by, by their own standards reasonably so by actual philosophers. Another example, in his book, The Strife of Systems, Nicholas Rescher argues that persistent disagreement is an inevitable feature of philosophy because philosophers inevitably have different cognitive values. And even when they share the same cognitive values, they won't all get weighed against each other in the same way. Nonetheless, he holds that one can perfectly well be said to know philosophical theses. From the vantage point of one's own cognitive value perspective, he says, the only one that one has only one optimally adequate position on philosophical issues is rationally warranted. Again then, according to Russia, philosophical knowledge is entirely possible. One can know P by one's own lights while fully appreciating that by different lights P does not constitute knowledge and indeed is not even rationally warranted. Suppose for now that some, some such response to the sceptical problem is viable. What these kinds of responses have in common is that they is that the challenge that they're attempting to meet is that of vindicating the knowledge claims of individual philosophers. But those responses fail to address a broader problem. We often take the bearers of knowledge not to be an isolated individual, but a community of some sort. Here's my picture. When, at the point in the TV crime drama, this is Fargo, where the detective gathers her team in the incident room and asks, what do we know? It's obviously a plot device to remind the viewers of what's gone on. Uh, she's asking for a pooling of resources. Her aim is to compile a list of purported facts about the suspect that can be used as a basis for further investigation. That list will generally consist of individuals' items of knowledge, of course. 
but it would be no help at all to the investigation if it were to turn out that different team members' items of knowledge only counted as knowledge in the absence of salient alternatives. Were PC Smith to convey his purported knowledge based on excellent evidence by saying the suspect lives with his mother, and PC Jones to convey his purported knowledge equally well-grounded in a different sort of evidence by saying the suspect shares a flat with her sister, have I gone from him and her? No, her sister. The detective would quite rightly conclude that the team collectively does not know what the suspect's living arrangements are. Similarly, when we ask what do we know about climate change or how much do we know about the causes of rheumatoid arthritis or whatever, any coherent answer to our question is going to be a set of purported facts whose members are consistent with one another. No proposition P that it is a matter that is a matter for persistent peer disagreement about climate change or whatever it is can make it onto the, onto the list since there'll be no grounds for having P rather than not P on the list. Now, what would happen if the philosophy detective were to gather the philosophy team, the epistemic community of philosophers, in the incident room and ask the question, what do we know? Uh, there is nothing significant in this choice of people. It's just I found pictures where they're all facing in the right direction. <laughs> uh, the list of purported facts, at least when it comes to substantive philosophical theses, is likely to be rather short, I think. Perhaps not quite that short, but quite short. <laughs> This is not because we contain within our midst garden variety sceptics intent on raising their sceptical hypotheses, thereby challenging our claims to know that the external world exists or that there are other minds or whatever. Perhaps there are such sceptics lurking in our midst. Um, even so, I think we can banish them from the philosophy incident room, just as our police detective banishes the police sceptic from hers. In the context of aiming to solve a crime, it is not helpful to pay attention to those who point out that all of our evidence is consistent with some incredibly contrived scenario cooked up solely for the purposes of undermining the crime team's claims to know anything about the perpetrator. Right? Not helpful. But even with the garden variety skeptic banished from the room, the situation in the philosophy incident room still leaves us with little by way of collective knowledge of substantive philosophical theses. The sceptical scenarios, in scare quotes, brought to the room by those with whom we profoundly disagree are not at all like those of the garden variety sceptic, which are put forward with the sole aim of challenging our claims to know. Rather, their consequences are well-worked-out philosophical theories that, at least in many cases, are the results of different choices of starting assumptions or methodological principles. When aimed at the claim that we collectively know a lot of substantive philosophical theses then, the problem of systematic peer disagreement is not met by appeal to the idea that, in the face of such disagreement, we can salvage our individual claims to know such theses. But I suggest that the difference between garden-variety sceptical scenarios and the kind of sceptical scenario which constitute rival substantive philosophical theses that are a matter for systematic peer disagreement serves to put pressure on even our individual claims to know substantive philosophical theses. Consider the stalemate that is the outcome of Argos and Bargos' dispute about the nature of holes again. According to Lewis's contextualist solution to the problem of philosophical scepticism, insofar as Argyll can claim to know that holes are material objects, Bargyll's contention that they are not constitutes a sceptical challenge, a relevant alternative to Argyll's view that once made salient, Argyll cannot rule out. Conversely, Argyll's contention that holes are material objects constitutes a sceptical challenge to Bargyll's view that they aren't. Collectively, Argyll and Bargyll do not know whether holes are material objects or not. But do they indi even individually know, when not discussing holes with one another, whether or not holes are material objects? They're members of the same epistemic community on any reasonable conception of epistemic community. They might be the best of friends, inhabitants of adjacent offices. They might even be married to each other. 
Argyll knows, not just while discussing holes with Bargle, but all the time, that Bargle can, by his own lights, legitimately claim to know the denial of the thesis that Argyll claims to know, and similarly for Bargle. That's very different to knowing that there are garden variety sceptical scenarios that one's evidence does not rule out. Claiming to know that the animal in front of me at the zoo is a zebra, while not yet being able to rule out the hypothesis that it's a mule painted to look like a zebra, that's one thing. Claiming to know that it's a zebra while knowing that some of one's epistemic peers can legitimately, by their own lights, claim to know that it's a painted mule would be another thing entirely. It therefore strikes me as decidedly odd to claim that Argyll can legitimately claim to know when Bargle's not around, or not talking about holes anyway, that holes are material objects. Moreover, once Argyll and Bargle agree, as they should, that they don't collectively know whether holes are material objects, it's unclear why Bargle should care very much whether or not he knows, when holes aren't under discussion, that holes are material objects. Argyll has a well-worked-out view on the matter. It coheres, we may suppose, with his wider body of philosophical views. He's measured the price of his view to his own satisfaction and found the price to be worth paying. The same goes for Bargle. Why shouldn't that be enough for each of them? So the thought here is that if our individual claims to knowledge do not contribute to our collective knowledge, which in cases of systematic peer disagreement they don't, it's not clear why our entitlement to individual knowledge claims is something that we should really care about. What purpose does it serve exactly? Well, I suggest that the only thing that we really need to care about here is our ability to sincerely take a view. Proper engagement in the business of philosophy does, I think, require that. But perhaps we can make sense of sincerely taking a view without conceiving the view in question as an item of knowledge or justified belief. Perhaps we don't even need to conceive of it as a matter of belief at all, and I'm going to come back to that suggestion later. First, however, let's return briefly to a question that I raised at the beginning. What is the aim of philosophy? As I said, we might like to, and many philosophers do, think that philosophy aims at knowledge. That surely is a collective and not an individual aim. It's the aim of philosophy qua intellectual endeavor pursued by a broad epistemic community that spans not only the globe, but about two and a half millennia. This being so, even if we could salvage the claim that substantive philosophical theses can be known individually, even in cases of systematic peer disagreement, that would not help us at all in conceiving ourselves as making our own individual contribution to that goal. Again, if I can reasonably claim to know that P, perhaps only when you, the naysayer, are safely out of the way, and you can equally reasonably claim to know that not P, when I'm safely out of the way, collectively we know nothing about whether or not P, and therefore are not contributing at all to our collective aim. Well, if systematic peer disagreements were generally tractable, then perhaps that wouldn't matter very much. Perhaps you and I are contributing to the collective aim of knowledge, not by contributing knowledge of our own, but by playing a necessary part in a dispute, perhaps a protracted one that's already been going on in some form or another for centuries, that will eventually be resolved. The methodology challenge, however, suggests that that would be wishful thinking. If we had grounds for thinking that our methods are truth-conducive, we would no doubt have grounds for thinking that all systematic peer disagreements will eventually get resolved, even if the resolution is years or even centuries away, or at least would get resolved given sufficient work. I think we can all agree that philosophy is hard. But we do not have such grounds. So if philosophy's aim is knowledge, then our methods are not fit for purpose, nor do we have the least idea how we might change or improve our methods in such a way as to deliver reasonable confidence that collective knowledge is, after all, attainable. So, um, that was the really negative bit. <laughs> uh, I don't think that what we should do is, you know, rip everything up and try and start again. Uh, 
I'd rather want to keep everything more or less as it was, um, but um, try and have a positive thesis about our self-conception, what it is that we're up to when we do that. So, the word I can't say, equilibrism. So what to do if we collectively don't know very much at all when it comes to substantive philosophical theses, and if there are no serious prospects of realising the aim of collective knowledge of such theses even in the long run? Well, we could aim for something else instead, something achievable in principle, and ideally something that doesn't require us to change the way we go about our business in order to make progress with respect to that aim. I want to propose a name that fits the bill by drawing on some well-known remarks of Lewis from the introduction to his first volume of philosophical papers. This has obvious connections with rules. So, here's what Lewis says. The reader in search of knockdown arguments in favour of my theories will go away disappointed. Whether or not it would be nice to knock disagreeing philosophers down by sheer force of argument, it cannot be done. Philosophical theories are never refuted conclusively. He gives a couple of uh, cases where maybe they were there. The theory survives its reputation at a price. Argyll has said what we accomplish in philosophical argument. We measure the price. Perhaps that's something we can settle more or less conclusively. But when all is said and done and all the tricky arguments and distinctions and counterexamples have been discovered, presumably we will still face the question which prices are worth paying, which theories are on balance credible, which are unacceptably counterintuitive, which are the unacceptably counterintuitive consequences and which are the acceptably counterintuitive ones. On this question, we may still differ, and if all is indeed said and done, there will be no hope of discovering still further arguments to settle our differences. It might be otherwise if, as some philosophers seem to think, we had a sharp line between linguistic intuition, which must be taken as unchallengeable evidence, and philosophical theory, which must at all costs fit this evidence. If that were so, conclusive refutations would be dismayingly abundant. But whatever may be said for foundationalism in other subjects, this foundational theory of philosophical knowledge seems ill-founded in the extreme. Our intuitions are simply opinions. Our philosophical theories are the same. Some are commonsensical, some are sophisticated, some are particular, some general, some are more firmly held, some less. But they are all opinions, and a reasonable goal for a philosopher is to bring them all into equilibrium. Our common task is to find out what equilibria there are that can withstand examination, but it remains for each of us to come to rest at one or another of them. So I propose that we conceive what Lewis sees as our common task, as our aim. That is, our collective aim is to find out what equilibria there are that can withstand examination. Intractable disagreements on this picture make for different equilibria. Argyll and Bargle agree on a great many things, we may suppose, and to that extent their respective equilibria will overlap but they disagree about the nature of holes, and we can assume on other issues besides where their different cost-benefit trade-offs are going to deliver different views, and those differences fall outside the intersection of their respective equilibria. With our aim thus conceived, philosophical scepticism conceived as a threat to our current state of collective knowledge of substantive philosophical theses, and indeed as a threat to our ability to achieve such knowledge in the long term, turns out not to pose a threat to our ability to make progress with respect to philosophy's aim. The fact that we bring to the table different sets of substantive assumptions and different methodological principles, the kinds of difference that generate intractable disagreements, is no threat to our ability to contribute to the aims of philosophy. On the contrary, such differences are precisely what generate the plurality of equilibria that it's our collective aim to uncover. And if our individual aim is to find an equilibrium position of our own, or at any rate a partial one given the vastness of the task, then it no longer really matters if our substantive philosophical views are unjustified. Argyll need not hide under his desk when Bargle is around, fearing that Bargle's insistence 
On reminding him of his, of his views that hole, uh, his view of holes will temporarily rob him of his knowledge that holes are material objects. Insofar as Argel and Bargel are convinced that their argument has run its course and each is occupying a stable position, neither poses any kind of threat to the other. So I'll call the combination of this broadly Lewisian conception of the aims of philosophy on the one hand and philosophical scepticism, understood as the thesis that knowledge of at least very many substantive philosophical theses is impossible, on the other, equilibrism. Equilibrism is, I hope, a relatively conservative position with respect to the practice of first-order philosophy. I take it that at least a very large part of what most individual philosophers do just is a matter of trying to find a partial point of equilibrium at which one is happy to, as Lewis puts it, come to rest. In particular, equilibrism doesn't in the least undermine the philosopher's stock in trade of argument and counterexample. I'll come, counter argument. I'll come back to that point um, in a minute. Mostly then, <coughs> equilibrism is merely an alternative account of why it is we're doing all of this, of what purpose we're serving in going about our business in the way that we generally do. It's important to stress that even the aim of bringing all of one's opinions into equilibrium is an exceptionally tall order, one that surpasses the lifespan and cognitive powers of any actual philosopher, including Lewis himself. For one thing, our own positions are only ever partial. They never span the whole of philosophical space. You might have your view in some area of metaphysics nicely buttoned down, or so it seems, but there's always the possibility that when you attempt to bring your guiding assumptions and methodological principles to bear on some new area, the philosophy of language, metaethics, philosophy of physics, or whatever it is, you find yourself forced to accept some unpalatable claims. Equilibrium's disturbed, and a rethink is required. Nor should the range of equilibria that can withstand examination be overstated, to the extent that there can be said to be some common knowledge and a common set of very general methodological standards in philosophy, there will be overlap between equilibria. Not, nor does just any old philosophical agreement over whether P, no matter how persistent, necessarily engender competing equilibria that differ with respect to P. Some persistent disagreements do get resolved eventually. I've said that, I'm not really sure that it's true. Um, it is, of course, hard to tell, while disagreement persists, whether or not it will eventually be resolved. And trying to resolve such disagreements is no less recommended by equilibrism than it is by a conception of philosophy as aiming at knowledge. Equilibrism only recommends that when the occasion demands, stopping the argument and moving on is a legitimate move to make in, our, in pursuit of our collective aims. So, final section. The commitment problem. So, Lewis himself conceives the aim of the individual philosopher as a matter of bringing all of one's opinions into equilibrium. But if knowledge of substantive theses can be claimed neither by us collectively nor even by each of us individually, doesn't that leave us firstly without any rational entitlement to so much as hold opinions at all? And in that case, how can our individual aim to be, be to bring all of our opinions into equilibrium? Second, argument is, of course, central to the philosophical enterprise, and to present an argument is surely to present a purported justification for one's view. If no such justification is in the offing, as philosophical scepticism maintains, how can argument be preserved as the central implement in the philosopher's toolkit? Well, let's start with the second question about the purpose of argument. Suppose that you offer an argument for P. It looks very much as though, and indeed you might explicitly claim that, you are offering a justification for P, or a reason to believe that P. Surely one might think the point of argument is precisely to figure out which claims are justified and which not. Otherwise, what is the point? Well, your argument for P constitutes a challenge to an, an audience that endorses not P. 
and also an invitation to endorse P to an audience that has no view one way or the other. Philosophical debate ensues. Your audience may attempt to find fault with your arguments. It's a bad argument. Perhaps, according to them, there are clear cases of arguments of that form that have true premises and a false conclusion. Uh, maybe one or more of its premises is false, according to them, but, of course, you may disagree, or whatever. They may or may not succeed by their own lights or, indeed, by your lights. Adjustments ensue wherever they need to be made in order for the equilibrium to be restored to whoever's position was challenged by the argument itself or by the ensuing debate. We move a tiny step closer to philosophy's aim by filling out a small corner of the space of equilibria. All of this is entirely rational, I claim. But this still depends on the idea that it's legitimate to endorse a position to have an opinion in Lewis's terms. It's crucial to the philosophical endeavour, I think, that we take a view. So does, equilibrium, does equilibrism require us to rescind from taking a view at all? There would be something sort of self-refuting about it if it did. So I say that it doesn't. But a story is needed. There's been a fair amount of discussion recently concerning whether the agnosticism that is recommended or allegedly recommended by the phenomenon of systematic peer disagreement is compatible with taking a view. Sanford Goldberg argues that the appropriate doxastic attitude in the face of systematic peer disagreement is that of what he calls attitudinal speculation which is a matter of, quote, having a degree of confidence above 0.5, but below the threshold warranting outright belief. Goldberg argues that attitudinal speculation does all the work that we might have thought we needed belief to do, including making sense of the idea that when we assert philosophical claims, we do so sincerely. And he takes having a view, or regarding a view as defensible, as amounting to attitudinal speculation, plus a certain kind of attachment, he says, one who endorses and defends a philosophical view is typically more motivated to persist in defense of the view when challenged than one who merely speculates that P. We are more committed and perhaps more emotionally attached to our philosophical views than we are to our speculations. So that's Goldberg. Taking a view amounts to attitudinal speculation plus attachment. Zach Barnett, uh, in a paper which uh, was given here fairly recently, I think, objects that the requirement of a degree of confidence above 0.5 is too demanding. Uh, for example, if you've got a three-way trade-off between different, uh, different views, it's hard to see how anyone's going to be entitled to have that degree of confidence. And argues for the view that, quote, a person's philosophical views should be her disagreement-insulated inclinations. So that's that view. Uh, where one's inclination towards P is insulated specifically from the evidence against P that arises from the fact that whether or not P is a matter of systematic peer disagreement. Barnett argues that this somewhat weaker condition on having a view nonetheless satisfies the sincerity requirement, the idea that when you take a view in philosophy, um, you have to be um, doing something sincerely. Goldberg's and Barnett's proposals are broadly friendly, I think, to equilibrism. After all, they both seek to make sense of the idea that sincere commitment to a philosophical view is compatible with the absence of full-blown belief and hence the absence of justified belief. So I wouldn't be sorry if a view along those lines turned out to be viable, and perhaps it will. On the other hand, from the equilibrist perspective, I think Goldberg and Barnett are overly concerned about the evidential status of the fact of systematic peer disagreement. Recall our common aim on the equilibrist view, to find out what equilibria there are that can withstand examination, and the corresponding individual aim of coming to rest at one of them. From the point of view of those common and individual aims, 
the fact that one's position, one's own position is subject to systematic peer disagreement is not something that presents a problem. The fact that other people disagree with us, and for good reasons by their own lights, on matters of philosophical substance is exactly what we should expect. Argel and Bargel disagree about whether holes are material objects because they have an irresolvable disagreement about how to trade consonants with common sense against theoretical economy. For each of them at this point, the fact of this disagreement is simply not a threat to their own individual aim. Argel does not need to establish that his own view is worthy of degree of belief greater than 0.5, nor does he have any need to insulate himself from Bargel's disagreement. He may get on with the business of pursuing his own individual aim of finding an equilibrium at which he can come to rest, while being fully aware that Bargel is aiming to find a different equilibrium of his own that enshrines claims that he, Bargel, disagrees with. And from the point of view of the collective aim of philosophy too, that's all well and good. In sort of tentatively rejecting Goldberg's and Barnett's proposal, however, I have, of course, just made life much harder for myself because equilibrism still needs an account of what it is to endorse a philosophical claim. In effect, an account of what it is to disagree about anything, as Argel and Bargel disagree with each other about the nature of wholes. I suggest again tentatively that something like Van Frasen's view about the acceptance of scientific theories can be made to solve the problem. Right, that's the line I'm going to go for. So constructive empiricism faces a similar problem to equilibrism. Given that science does not aim at truth and hence knowledge of scientific theories, it only aims at empirical adequacy, how can we make sense of the fact that scientists do and indeed must, for the purposes of pursuing that aim, make assertions that apparently commit them to or apparently express belief in claims about unobservables for which they have no justification? Van Fransen's answer, in short, is that acceptance of and belief in such claims are two distinct phenomena and only acceptance is required. So here's what for Van Fransen acceptance amounts to. This is all a quote. Acceptance of theories, whether full, tentative, to a degree, etc., is a phenomenon of scientific activity which clearly involves more than belief in empirical adequacy. Right? So he's talking about uh, what our attitude should be towards the unobservables. One main reason for this is that we're never confronted with a complete theory. So if a scientist accepts a theory, he thereby involves himself in a certain kind of research program. That program could well be different from the one acceptance of another theory would have given him, even if those two very incomplete theories are equivalent to each other with respect to everything that's observable insofar as they go. Thus, acceptance involves not only belief in empirical adequacy, but a certain commitment. Even for those of us who are not working scientists, the acceptance involves a commitment to confront any future phenomena by means of the conceptual resources of this theory. It determines the terms in which we shall seek explanations. If the acceptance is at all strong, it's exhibited in the person's assumption of the role of explainer in his willingness to answer questions ex cathedra. Even if you do not accept a theory, you can engage in discourse in a context in which language use is guided by that theory, but acceptance produces such contexts. There are similarities in all of this to ideological commitments. A commitment is, of course, not true or false. The confidence exhibited is that it will be vindicated. So roughly, the idea is that in accepting a scientific theory that's ontologically committed to unobservables, the scientist does not, or at least need not, adopt the attitude of belief towards what the theory says about those unobservables. Or indeed, any attitude that's a kind of watered-down belief substitute, such as Goldberg's attitudinal speculation or Barnett's inclination. Rather, the scientist takes on a kind of practical commitment, 
a commitment to confront any future phenomena by means of the conceptual resources of the theory, a willingness to answer questions ex cathedra and to assume the role of explainer, and so on. In other words, to speak and write and act as though the theory is true, or at least insofar as the theory is incomplete, true or close to true in broad outline. This connects, I think, with Goldberg's and Barnett's concern about sincerity. If we're not entitled to believe the claims of our own theories, in what sense can they truly be said to be our theories? How can we sincerely endorse the claims those theories make? Acceptance, I take it, is supposed to deliver sincerity. The attitude of acceptance does not, of course, constitute sincere belief, but it's sincere nonetheless. The working scientist adopts a theoretical standpoint, works hard to accommodate the existing evidence and explore further consequences of her theory, makes adjustments where necessary, and so on. And she can do all of this entirely sincerely, while yet merely accepting rather than believing her own theory, according to Van Frassen. All of this, I suggest, amounts to the scientist taking a view, in as much of a sense of taking a view as is required for the purposes of her playing her part in the progress of science. If something like Van Frassen's notion of acceptance really can constitute a legitimate sense in which one might take a view, then it can, I think, be applied to the working philosopher no less than the working scientist. The aims of science, according to Van Frassen, and the aims of philosophy, according to me, uh, differ, of course. Uh, the aim of empirical adequacy in science is very different to the pluralist aim in philosophy of discovering the equilibrium positions that can withstand examination. But in each case, the acceptance of a theory that one cannot rationally believe serves a purpose relative to that aim. In the case of science, the aim of empirical adequacy demands that theories that posit unobservables are developed and tested. And in the case of philosophy, the aim of discovery of equilibria demands that we take on board a set of core assumptions and methodological prescriptions in order to develop, to develop and scrutinize an equilibrium position of our own that can withstand examination. So I want to end briefly by returning to one of the examples I gave at the beginning of places where our self-conception as knowledge seekers seems to be out of kilter with our actual practices. Um, and uh, this makes it sound like this is the whole point of the paper. This is not the whole point of the paper. It's just an example. Um, uh, and that example is humanist supervenience, a thesis for which I claim there is no remotely compelling argument, but which is nonetheless taken very seriously as a topic for debate in certain circles. Equilibrism makes good sense of this fact, I think. Humian supervenience is undeniably a bold and interesting speculative hypothesis. It appeals to a certain kind of philosophical mindset. It appeals to the Quinean lover of desert landscapes, and it appeals to the kind of philosopher, the broadly Humian kind, of which I think Lewis was one and I'm another, who is deeply suspicious of the notion of natural necessity conceived as an intrinsic feature of the world. It's the kind of thesis that a philosopher might legitimately accept, in the sense just sketched even in the knowledge that there are many others who do not accept it in the same sense and who cannot be rationally persuaded to accept it. Or believe it, I suppose. Um, whether ultimately human supervenience can take its place within an equilibrium that can withstand examination is a perfectly good question and one that it's worth trying to answer. But to ask whether there's any good justification for that thesis is, I think, to ask the wrong question. And that's the end. Thank you.